So I went a little on the nerdy side with this because I think a lot of what's out there about metabolism is just telling a very small part of the story. And that's part of how people end up with these hardcore attitudes about this is the only diet. This is the only way to eat. This is the only way to time your meals or whatever. I think there's not an understanding of the big picture. And this isn't going to be the full big picture anyway. It's just going to be a broader picture than what you'll usually hear about metabolism. So I made a slideshow. My slideshows never come out as <laughs> quite exactly the way I want them to. I'm still learning the slideshow thing, but I'll try to insert comments. And please, um, Eleanor and Monica, just you know, ask any questions that you think of. Uh, you can put your hand up or um, put it in the chat and I'll see it since there's just the three of us. Um, what would you be hoping to learn about metabolism specifically? Um, this is Monica. So <laughs> um, I guess how it is changing as I get older. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm almost feeling um, hopeless these days about like adjusting metabolism or, or, you know, helping maximize it or whatever mm -hmm. word you want to use, you know? Yeah. Um, but no, I feel true. like as I get older, I just have like no control over it at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My yeah. feeling's really similar, actually. Hi, I'm actually Jennifer. Eleanor's my daughter. Um, oh, that's funny, because I remembered your email, and I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what? I'm even going to say hello. Hi yeah, there. Hi. <laughs> I'm out in Massachusetts, and um, I, I just have been following, like, your nice posts, and I love getting your emails, and my daughter, one of my daughters took your teen health class. Yes, um, Jennifer, yeah. Oh, or no, no. Um, It was Evangeline that took it. Um, right, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She loved it. And she's really like, she learned so much and she's just a dynamo about that now. And I like, I am finding very similar to Monica, I think, you know, as I age, mm -hmm. just all sorts of strange and different kinds of things, you know, yeah. about my body. I also just, just recovered for, from an appendectomy. I, um, Ooh. the last few months I've really been like feeling quite not myself and thinking yeah. I really need to change my diet. Something's really wrong. And of course I didn't realize I was, I had appendicitis. Um, yeah. um so now yeah. I'm like, I'm in recovery for that, which is great. I'm on the other side and feeling so much better. But yeah. when I saw that you were doing this today, I was like, well, this is perfect. I'm supposed to be sitting around resting anyway. So I'm good. excited to see what you can share with us. So, okay, good, good. Yeah. And I mean, this will, this will definitely touch I think it'll, it'll illuminate some of the reasons that it slows down as we get older. And the practical side is kind of more in the, the latter part of the presentation. And also um, the thyroid and the sleep ones will probably also illuminate some of that too, because the thyroid does tend to slow down and sometimes our behaviors also slow it down further or, or missing nutrients. So, but um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely, I feel like there's a sweet spot where in my later thirties, it was great to not have to snack all the time because my metabolism had been so fast in my twenties. But then <laughs> of course you cross over even a little bit further and then you have to really watch what you eat. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely figuring out the rules for me too. Um, of like 
I think I need to only ever eat when I'm quite hungry, you know, never eat, <laughs> you know, you can just kind of munch when you're younger and there's just so many buckets you're trying to fill, I guess, at that point in terms of growth and calories and it's a very different thing, but yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to start the presentation and we'll just see, we'll see how this looks. And like I said, please do ask your questions and you know, we can always exit out of the presentation and um, see what else comes up. Let's see. So share. Okay. Hopefully this, oh no, no, not that way. <laughs> uh, slideshow. That's what I want. Okay. All right. So it should get big, right? So yeah, trying to talk about energy metabolism, blood glucose, insulin, glycogen. These are some of the things we tend to hear a lot about as we're trying to figure this out and you start going down the rabbit hole. And first of all, I think it's interesting to consider why do we need to eat at all? Um, basically, this is, gets back to chemistry and physics and the laws of thermodynamics because all systems, including ourselves, tend to decay. And we need to keep bringing energy into the system to maintain all the complexity in our ourselves, all the order. Otherwise, it won't work. And order contains stored energy. And a really simple physical example of this would be if you have a water tank at the top of a hill, you pumped the water up into that tank, the gravity the difference between you at the tank at the top of the hill and you at the bottom of the hill with your fire hose is the, it's the energy that you stored. So you created order, you put the water where you wanted it so that you could then, without any extra input of energy, have the water come down, literally down, but also energetically just seek its lower state and then it will do what you want it to do. So a lot of what we do in our cells is like that. We pump minerals into one side of a cell membrane or another side. We store things in one area and keep it tied up there and then slowly allow it, allow it to leak out. So these are just some slides I found from a presentation online um, with uh, Chris Masterjohn. His, he has a mastering nutrition, energy metabolism, whole series that I'm subscribed for. And he's got these really nice slides. So I pulled a few of them. Um, so most of our energy or half, you know, we lose a lot of energy as heat, which we need to keep us warm, but also it's just how energy works. When you're creating order, you also create disorder and waste energy. That's part of how it works. Um, in terms of thermodynamics and chemistry. So we're creating order and we're repairing, right? Always repairing. And of course, if we move, we use more calories and then the actual movements in our body. So heartbeat and breathing. But so much of our food energy goes to maintaining chemical potential, chemical potential energy in all sorts of places in our cells. And one of the most basic places where chemical energy is stored is ATP. You've probably heard ATP is like the money of the cell, the energy currency of the cell. And so when you break one of these bonds, 
that phosphate bond at the end of this P over here, then it releases energy. And you go down to ADP because it's adenosine diphosphate. So two phosphates, adenosine triphosphate has one extra bond that's easy to break. And then that releases energy. So basically ATP puts the energy into all these tiny little packets that are super easy to use and carry around. And as an example, you've probably heard about where protein and fat and carbs kind of get burned, right? Protein gets turned into amino acids, which we use to build tissue, bone, neurotransmitters, and enzymes. This is part of why we need protein. Uh, fat and carbohydrates are both fuels, but fat burns slowly and it can be stored for later use. It's very dense. Um, fat, when we store it, doesn't have very much water in it. Otherwise, we would all be 800 pounds of, you know, whale blubber or whatever, carrying the water with us. Um, so it's, it's hydrophobic, right? It doesn't mix. Um, fat also comes with a bunch of vitamins. Those are a few examples. And carbohydrates can be burned the most different ways. So if you've ever looked at some of those energy charts for sports, there's three different energy systems for burning carbohydrates. One is super fast, one is fast, and one is regular speed. So if you ever have to do a short burst of speed, you're going to use the very fastest one. It's also not very efficient, but it's super fast. So that's how you can do a burst of speed for 20 seconds to push someone out of the way of an oncoming car. That's that very fastest system of carbohydrates. Um, and then you have the next system that runs for a minute or two. We can be pretty fast. And then after that, you're onto your third system, which is your whatever your exercise threshold is, however adapted you are, that's the system you maintain for a period of time. At that point, you're burning carbohydrates and fat at whatever you can, whatever level you can sustain for a long period of time, you're actually using both because that allows your blood sugar to make, be more stable. And your body is never going to choose to burn through all your carbohydrates before it burns through fat, if it has a choice. Because what if you suddenly needed to push someone out of the way of a car? What if you suddenly need to do something urgent and very fast and energy intensive with your body and you'd used up all your carbohydrates just for walking around the house? That'd be lame. So your body does not, will not preferentially use all the carbohydrates in your muscles and liver um, when you're just doing ordinary activities that don't draw on your energy demands very fast. I just realized I might not be able to see if you're typing in the chat box. Does anybody have questions? When I'm in presentation mode, I'm not sure how it's gonna appear. Okay. So any of these foods can be broken, can be burned in various ways to get ATP. Now, because protein is a little more of a building block, particularly for things like enzymes, which will then control the rate of other things in your metabolism, Burning protein for energy is a little bit like burning books to light a fire. It's a little bit of overkill. It's not your body's first choice. 
but it can burn pretty fast if you need it to. Carbohydrates would be the first choice with a, a slow drip of fat. Um, but obviously humans can deal with almost any kind of food coming into them. Uh, and then I just add a few things that also come with food, fiber, slows the absorption of carbs and provides food for bacteria and water obviously comes with food and then vitamins and minerals, which are required for these chemical reactions. We're gonna get into some of those. All right, so where does the food go? For example, carbohydrates are processed in the small intestine. They circulate to the liver before going to the pancreas. So we're talking about just where it goes physically as it goes into your circulation. Um, fat actually passes your heart first, weirdly. Um, protein, the amino acids go into your blood circulation and then get pulled into different processes after that. So one of the interesting things about carbohydrates is if it had been a long time since you had eaten, and you had used up most of the glycogen in your liver, then your liver would skim carbohydrates off of your blood as your blood went through your liver. If there was room in your liver, basically, your liver gets first pick because the liver is so critical for regulating our blood sugar. And then after the liver's taken however much it can grab, then whatever sugar is left in your blood and enters your pancreas, that will be the amount of sugar that signals your pancreas about how much insulin to release. All of these different foods, carbohydrates, fat, and protein become acetyl-CoA, uh, which requires B5 in order to make that panathetic acid. This is why panathetic acid is such a critical B vitamin but it also comes in almost every food. So there's a debate about whether you can really be short on this or not. But in terms of skin health, and I've also heard for hair, um, panathetic acid is thought to be really useful. And there's just a note here, much of our food does not go directly into being burned for energy, but becomes building blocks for other things. All of these processes are very complicated and our body regulates them really tightly. So we're not burning energy too fast where it would then get wasted. So an example would be like when we drive a car, we use a tiny bit of gasoline at a time to create combustion and drive the pistons in the engine, right? You could also light the gas tank and create an explosion or just a big gas fire blow up the car. So if you lit the gas tank, you're releasing all the energy at once and you're not capturing any of it in a way that's useful. So all the tight control that our body has over the chemical reactions that regulate our metabolism is designed to capture and store as much energy as possible each time a reaction happens. Okay. Otherwise we obviously wouldn't be able to live. So here's some nutrients that are required. Vitamin B5 goes into the coenzyme A molecule. Niacin goes into NADH. 
Um, and vitamin P, B2 goes into FADH2. So B, these, these are basically our kind of building blocks of the, met, the metabolism process and they require different B vitamins and B vitamins come with protein. And so this is again, another reason why having a low protein diet will tend to compromise your metabolism over time. Also, you won't have the enzymes and neurotransmitters to regulate your metabolism as much as you ought to. And <clears throat> coenzyme Q10 also is part of your basic metabolism. This is one of the many things that we don't tend to make as well as we get older. And this is why CoQ10 is an anti-aging supplement that people find helps them to feel more energetic. <clears throat> and we see a high concentration of it in tissues that have high energy demands, such as the heart. So before there were CoQ10 pills, if you ate animal hearts, that was the most CoQ10 rich thing you could get. So it's distributed throughout our body. And um, in terms of giving more energy and relieving fatigue, what I've found personally is taking CoQ10 will give kind of a, a lift or it just makes you feel less tired. It doesn't make you feel amped, just less tired, but it doesn't continue to work indefinitely because as I understand it, it only works to the extent that you have a deficiency. Once you've restocked your deficiency for however old you are, however deficient you are, then you hit a point of diminishing returns where it, it's not doing you any harm, but it's going to not give you that same kind of lift that you got before. And uh, so when I've been taking this, it's, you know, initially I'll kind of feel significantly less tired when I take it. But then after a period of months, I think the first time it was almost a year before it just kind of didn't do it anymore. But at that point, my heart was most definitely healthier. Um, I'd always been prone to heart palpitations. So it did give me some benefits beyond helping with my fatigue. So basically just to be aware, when you take that, you're kind of correcting inefficiency. You could take it routinely, but you wouldn't expect that it would continue to always give you the same kind of lift, if that makes sense. So insulin is one of the things that we think of mostly when we're talking about energy metabolism. And the insulin is in the, the beta cells of your pancreas, but also glucagon is also in different cells, the alpha cells of your pancreas. So we think of insulin as a response to carbohydrate, which is kind of true, right? If we eat more sugar, we release more insulin because we need to burn that sugar. But we already talked about how your liver actually gets first pass. If you have not been overeating, if you've been undereating, if you didn't eat very much the night before, if you didn't have dessert and your liver is kind of low on glycogen, it's going to siphon off some of the sugar that you eat, the glucose in your blood, even before it would get to your pancreas and signal your pancreas. Also, if you ate sugar, but you had 
no other food with it. So just low calories overall, even though you had a relatively high sugar diet, you do not tend to get as heavy of an insulin response. Again, some people are going to be very sensitive to this, but um, you're going to get the biggest insulin response if you are eating plenty of calories overall. And then on top of that, you have more carbohydrate than is strictly necessary. So all of the different places where energy can go, you know, all the different places where there's resources to go, the fat, the protein, the amino acids, all those buckets are full. And then you've got a carbohydrates even beyond that, then you're going to get a very strong signal from insulin to say, okay, we've got to do something with this. So carbohydrates are the most metabolically flexible form of energy and we can use them the fastest. Also, we can't store that many carbohydrates. Like I said, carbohydrates get stored with water and then we would be, we would all look like the Michelin man. So we store some carbohydrates in our liver and some in our muscles. But for most people, this is just a day or two worth of carbohydrates that you're storing. Now, if you have extra body weight and you were just stopping eating, your body would start to turn fat and some of your protein from your muscles into, into energy. So that's how you survive. But just in terms of ready to go carbohydrates, glycogen, the storage form is there's, you can't store that much of it, practically speaking. The more active a person is, the more metabolically active their muscles are, the more fit they are, the more glycogen they will be able to store in their muscles through repeated exercise, through, through repeatedly using that system of depleting glycogen through exercise, replacing glycogen through carbohydrates and food intake after exercise. So the more you use that system, the better it gets, but there's still a limit to how much glycogen your body can store given the size of your muscles, the size of your liver. So the insulin response does not depend simply on the level of glucose in the blood, but also the levels of ATP in the pancreas. So ATP is that, that energy currency of the cell. If you have been eating plenty of food and you then eat a carb heavy meal, you already have plenty of ATP in your pancreas. If you weren't eating plenty of food, if you would have been under eating for several days and you eat a bunch of sugar, there's not as much ATP in your pancreas. So you're not going to get such a strong insulin response. Yeah, uh, Monica, I think the muscle storage must be affected by age. I have not gone to research this very much, but it could be that it's actually affected by age, which is fairly likely. But it's, it seems definitely must be the case that as we age and we are less active and we have less muscle mass, that by itself would explain, because I definitely feel that I don't store glycogen the way I did in my twenties. It was very apparent when I was nursing that it was challenging for me to eat the right amount of carbohydrates to not feel exhausted nursing. And that had not been such a problem when I was younger. 
So something about the whole storage and retrieval process was not working quite the same way. Um, I actually started taking creatine when I was nursing my last kid and it did seem to help. And I also started carb loading as if I was doing sports, even though I wasn't. Um, <clears throat> and so for carb loading, uh, for replacing your glycogen, you actually want to, um, you actually want to kick a little bit of insulin up. So you're if you're an athlete and you're carb loading for an event, you actually need to cross kind of a carb threshold so that, you know, your liver gets full and your muscles can get full. Um, so, which is what I had to do when I was nursing at, I guess, 35, 36, hmm. late thirties. Um, if I just ate low carb, most of the time I would just drag nursing, but of course, nursing just skims calories skim sugar right off of your blood too. Right. I mean, it's literally just, you know, pulling it out, turning it into milk. And if you've got a toddler who can run around and has a really big nursing appetite, it's not surprising that they're pulling a thousand of your best calories of the day out. And it's not surprising it'd be exhausting. So the thing about, um, if you're trying to reload your glycogen, you, that you don't want fat. And this was learning for me. You don't really, you want, you want to spike your blood sugar, basically, if you're trying to reload your glycogen. And so athletes do this with, you know, recovery drinks, right? It's got a bunch of sugar. It probably has a little bit of protein. It doesn't have much fat. You can reload your glycogen either with high sugar, high carbs, just carbs by themselves, or high carbs and some lean protein. Someone told me that when she was trying to do like muscle building, the trick she heard was a bowl of oatmeal and um, protein powder. So plenty of quality carbs, a little bit of fiber and then protein. So for me, um, that, that doesn't, that didn't sound very appealing, but the thing, the only carbs I like to eat without fat, like if I'm going to eat bread, I'm going to put butter on it. Right. So I needed carbs that I could enjoy without fat. So for me, that yeah, that's was, tricky. Um, what? <laughs> that's tricky. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, so, but I like fruit a lot. And mm. so I could sit and eat a bowl of orange slices, no problem. And I don't feel like that needs fat or mango sorbet raspberry sorbet or a smoothie, like a fruit and fruit juice smoothie. Those are all ways for me to get a bunch of carbs. And I realized that I felt tremendously better if I basically sat down to eat eight oranges a couple times a week, just a ridiculous amount of fruit. If you're going to do it with fruit, it's a, it's ridiculous. Um, normally, you know, we're not sitting down to eat eight oranges, but if you're I, I felt when I was nursing my last, like I had just worked out, like I had walked five miles or seven miles or something. My muscles had that level of fatigue, just doing nothing. But I felt that that was from nursing her. And then I started to take creatine because that will improves your um, muscle energy storage. And that seemed to help too. And it's a very safe supplement. It's totally fine to take nursing. Um, so yeah, it's just so, this, this conversation is making me think of like, um, 
what strategies would be effective at, at muscle building. So I'm glad you said that because I, uh, I wouldn't have made the connection there between carb loading and, you know, needing that in order to build your muscle after you've worked out or something, but even like what types of working out would work best. What'd you say? Like, um, that what strategies would you take into working out? Like, would you do more, I guess you'd have to do more, um, like muscle intensive activities kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, generally if you're, if you're not adapted to working out, you need to kind of ease into it. Right. Cause if you, right. Oh, if sure. You, if you've been inactive and you have insulin resistance, there's a certain amount of inflammation that comes with that. Your body will be happy that you exercised, but it also creates more metabolic debris. If you're insulin resistant, you will have more lactate after you have exercised than uh, uh, someone who's more metabolically in an ideal place. So it, you will actually, you actually have the potential to be more sore. It's good for you. It improves your insulin tolerance quite a bit. But as you adapt, you are going to feel probably more, more like it's more work as you're doing the workout. And also you have the potential to be much more sore afterwards. Mm-hmm. So you just have to take that into account, but yeah, the, if you're starting to build muscle and you're not craving any carbs initially, you know, depending how much weight your body can tap into metabolically, initially you might not need that much extra carbs, but you might also find that you crave carbs. You crave fruit after a workout because you've tapped out your glycogen and your end your body will replace it, but it'll take longer if your body has to slowly burn some fat and then turn that into glycogen, you know? So it, it kind of, part of it depends on your tolerance for fatigue. If you want, if you're okay, kind of dragging yourself around, I guess you would lose weight faster, but if you're also nursing a baby, or if you just don't want to be dragging yourself around, I would just eat some carbs after that workout just to try to hit that sweet spot. Maybe it's not going to be eight oranges. Maybe it'd be one or two. Right. But you're just trying to signal that the try to make sure your liver and your muscles get restocked. Mm -hmm. But that's also one of the great things about building your muscle mass is then your baseline metabolism is faster. And then if you worked out hard that day or the day before, and you go eat a little extra carbs, there's someplace for it to go. It's not just going to spike your blood sugar there's a little emptiness in your liver where you can, your liver can send some carbs in there as glycogen, or there's um, some room in your muscles to, st- to have some carbs as well. So it's kind of like a carb cushion. That's part of how I think of the, um, mm. any kind of, even you know, obviously cardio burns more carbs while you're doing it, but weightlifting depletes your glycogen. So I think particularly if you are insulin resistant, it's really useful to, um, to deplete your glycogen intentionally through lifting weights. And it gives you that carb cushion that you need to slowly work on your insulin resistance and not keep spiking your blood sugar and triggering that process again of overproducing insulin. So Um, yeah, so the pancreas is 
and insulin in the pancreas is kind of a sensor of energy availability and versatility. If you have plenty of ATP throughout your body, including your pancreas, it knows that extra sugar should then be turned into fat or something else to store it for later. It knows we don't need it right now. If all the ATP spots are filled in all the different tissues that would have ATP, then your body knows we're covered. We're covered for the short term. Now, this is also partly why insulin signals the thyroid and why it's a much more important thing for a woman to make sure she gets the right amount of carbs than for a guy. Because for a woman, if she is always low on carbs, then her body gets the message that there is not quick energy available in her environment. And then it will slow down her thyroid to a more basic metabolic level, you know, survival, but not ideal for fertility or hormone levels over time or weight loss. Because if your hormones are lower, your metabolism is also slower. And I'm going to do a whole thing on thyroid because it's such a big, interesting question. But just to be aware, this is part of why insulin and the thyroid hormone are related because insulin is responding to how much energy is available in the environment, particularly how much quick energy, the carbohydrate, mostly carbohydrate energy. So the pancreas makes insulin and glucagon. The carbohydrate does increase insulin the most and it lowers glucagon because glucagon is the hormone we use to pull energy out of stored places. Glucagon is what we, our body release, uh, uses to pull energy out of our liver, pull sugar out of our liver. So if you just got a bunch of carbohydrates, you don't need to pull anything out of your liver. You're going to use what you just got. But protein and fat will increase insulin a little bit. But since there's no sugar that's going to, there's no quick energy that it's going to come with protein and fat, you also have to release some glucagon to pull some sugar from somewhere else. This is one of the strategies of eating a protein rich breakfast um, for your first meal of the day or whatever you, whenever you eat your first meal of the day, assuming your liver, you ate some carbs at dinner or the previous afternoon, and your liver has some stored carbs. If you eat protein and fat first, and you're not releasing much insulin and you didn't get any quick sugar into your blood, you will release some glucagon and pull a little more of the carbs out of your liver. So it's one more way to make sure you're not overloading your body with carbs is to eat a protein heavy breakfast. Now, again, this doesn't always work that well when you're nursing a baby, or if I eat a very low carb dinner, I am most definitely gonna be hungry for carbs in the morning. But if I ate a high carb dinner, or you know, moderate carb dinner, I might only want protein in the morning. So it's just another kind of trick to be aware of in terms of metabolism. If you ate dessert and then the next morning you just eat eggs and vegetables for breakfast, then you're kind of working with your metabolism. You're gonna pull some of that stored sugar out of, if your body put it into a quick access place like your liver, you're going to pull some out when you eat that protein heavy breakfast. 
So the, the strength of insulin signaling depends on how much insulin there is in relation to glucagon. So this is part of why carbohydrate has such a stronger signal because it actually increases in insulin and lowers glucagon and protein and fat, it increases both or coffee with cream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Coffee increases your metabolism in general with whatever's already available in your blood, it speeds it up. Um, but yes, coffee with cream works. And when our blood sugar gets too low, our liver responds to glucagon and drips out some of our glycogen. If we ever have an emergency and our adrenaline, our cortisol goes up, we dump, we'll dump the sugar from our liver into our bloodstream. So if you were wearing a blood sugar monitor and you got very stressed or angry, you would see your blood sugar go really high, even though, even if you hadn't even eaten anything. And that's your body dumping sugar in preparation for if you have to, you know, wield the frying pan to scare away the bear or, you know, lift up the car to get the animal that's trapped under it or whatever, you know, it's basically dumping sugar so you can do a thing with your body that's potentially very intense. And it's just like you chugged a Gatorade or something. All of a sudden you have tons of sugar available for you. But obviously you can see how that would be not great if it was just mental stress causing you to dump your liver sugar and then basically creating insulin resistance, right? Through the inflammation and repeatedly having sugar that's a little too high. Also, um, low sleep will change how you metabolize. Okay, so um, this is just a couple different ways that we amplify the signals in our metabolism. Um, carbs and protein can easily become glucose, even though, as I said, it's a little bit of a waste to just burn amino acids for energy because they can be building blocks for so many other things. It's like burning books. Um, any excess of any one carbs or fat or protein can cause fat to be formed in the pancreas. And obviously in the liver, this is how you get fatty liver. Only carbohydrate can drive this, this pathway. And only carbohydrate raises the energy, the ATP available in the general fluid of the cell, just like floating around, just the, the, in the soup, basically. And it doesn't have to do anything. That's just sugar, that's energy that's just available without any processes happening. Um, okay. So a lot of people talk about ketosis, right? Um, this is a little nerdy here. I think I've got some slideshow things or some slides are going up too. The whole purpose of being in ketosis is to not burn up all your protein to make glucose. If you had to burn up all your protein, you would lose over two pounds of muscle every day. So you would basically waste away and die really fast if you couldn't eat. There are probably animals that do this. Um, so if we switch over to using more ketones, 
we can use ketones for a lot of our brain's energy requirement, but not for all of it. So it spares a lot of proteins that we would have to burn to turn into sugar for our brains. So then we would lose, with ketosis, we lose about only half a pound of muscle a day. Now, again, people can mitigate this by being very, by challenging their bodies physically when they're in ketosis and they won't lose that much muscle mass. Depends on the person. But you have to, if you want to maintain muscle mass while you're in ketosis, you do need to exercise. You need to challenge your muscles to send that signal to maintain the muscle mass, even though your body, and you have to eat lots of protein because your body is using amino acids for part of your, um, part of your requirement for your brain to have sugar. Um, all right. Oh, here's a couple of more things that insulin does. It stimulates the production of glutathione, which is a master antioxidant. This is also one of the things that tends to decrease as we get older. And so some people take glutathione supplements or precursors, which I particularly recommend if you have asthma. Um, it raises the expression of enzymes to manage glycation, which is basically cells getting kind of sticky and covered with um, free radicals over time. And it signals the thyroid to increase your metabolism because you do have enough energy, you have extra energy to invest in storing resources and potentially growing another human. So again, this is obviously particularly important for women. It doesn't take that much energy for a man to do his part of conception, but it takes you know, 75 to hundred thousand calories to grow and nurse a baby for a little bit. So that's part of why your thyroid is so sensitive to carbohydrates. If you're a woman in your, and you're still cycling. So here's a few, a little diagram about the rules of insulin and how it kind of signals different things um, to different parts of your body. We yeah. could definitely cover ideal ratios of macros. Yes, well, we can try. Now, ultimately your ideal ratio is gonna be kind of individual and it's gonna depend also what kind of exercise you're doing. And I would argue how much sleep and stress is in your life. But, all right. Um, actually, I want to just get out of this for a second and go to a different part of the slideshow about the, about the, um, oops, about what's going on with your brain. Okay, so just going to go back to that for a second. Well, I'll just go ahead and show this one. Um, so the blue dots are someone who is insulin sensitive. Their body is very responsive to insulin, maybe because they are getting plenty of sleep. 
maybe because they have great genes and plenty of micronutrients, maybe because they are habitually active and they have a good muscle mass. Could be any reason, probably all three. If you're insulin resistant, you can look at this graph and see it takes so much more insulin to process the sugar, right? This is part of why it, that just looking at your blood sugar does not tell you that much about your insulin. So you see the blood sugar graphs between these two people are not that different. That's what's on the left here. The person who's insulin resistant, their blood sugar is a little higher, right? It's staying a little higher pretty much the whole time. You know, a few hours later, it's converged. Now, you can definitely see that the person who's insulin sensitive, it goes up to basically the same number, which I think is so interesting. I hope, I'm just gonna annotate this and hopefully, hopefully this is clear. Right, right here. So both of these people eat a meal. The person who's insulin resistant already has higher blood sugar to start with, right? but not hugely higher. It goes up to about the same number. And then after that, it just stays a little higher overall for the person who's insulin resistant. But meanwhile, what's happening is that this person who's insulin resistant is making way more insulin to achieve those blood sugar numbers that are pretty similar. Your body really, really wants your blood sugar to be in this range. If it can possibly make it happen, it will do it. Your body really, really does not want your blood sugar to be high. It is a huge stressor for your kidneys. Um, it's really, it's not good for your brain. So your body will just make a ton of insulin. It'll just do what it takes to keep your blood sugar in something like the normal range as long as it can. So I just think this is a super interesting example. And this kind of explains why if you're insulin resistant, you just feel like crap after you eat sugar because your insulin is twice as high as it ought to be. And so this is the kind of thing where if you know this about yourself, this is why. <laughs> if you know I can eat two cookies and I'll feel terrible and that other person can eat 10 cookies that person, that other person has just a way better insulin response or they're exercising more or they didn't snack the night before or any, whatever else, their insulin is not ending up as high as yours for whatever reason. That's part of why you're feeling gross. And high insulin will drive a bunch of other downstream problems of changing your hormones and inflammation and stuff like that. So yeah, I don't remember where I found this graph, but I thought it was interesting. Now, another thing to note is that if you then go exercise and you are that insulin resistant person, at least while you're exercising, it makes your insulin and your blood sugar behave more as if you weren't insulin resistant. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> Here's another kind of different kind of graph of it. Constant high glucose, constant high insulin demand, right? Now, again, the liver is over here. 
if the liver and muscles had room, I'll draw a little liver, right? If your liver and your muscles had room for glucose and it could go in there, it wouldn't end up so high in your blood, right? So this is what happens when you already have plenty in your liver and you're eating carbs beyond what you need metabolically. I'm just going to stop share. Oops. For a minute. So, um, I want to make sure we answer Monica's question. Um, so your ideal ratio, I'll just do a share screen of, a of just a whiteboard here. Um, Your ideal ratio is going to be kind of individual. In terms of losing weight, studies have shown that you can lose weight on any kind of proportions if your calories are restricted. But in general, people seem to feel better when they, when they have moderate carbs than when they go super low fat, right? Cutting, cutting your fat quite a bit is obviously a way to lower your calories. But if you cut your fat really, really steeply, most people feel very hungry and kind of unhappy. Um, and so the one that is easiest for many people to cut is either just kind of cut overall calories, add a lot of fiber or cut the carbs. The other thing that happens with carbs is that wasn't on these slides yet, is that when you eat excess carbs or Excess salt, carbs, salt, or amino acids, um, raise uric acid and begin storage of fat in the liver and elsewhere. And there's a there's a guy called Rick Johnson who I think is his name. He wrote a book called the fat switch. And I honestly found the book kind of hard to read, at least on Kindle on my phone, but his interviews are really, really interesting. And, um, oh, uric acid, sorry. If you want to kind of hear about how this process works, he, he does a really nice explanation on his interviews and it's probably a lot faster than reading a book. Okay. The other interesting thing is, um, I mean, even a two hour interview is going to, it's a thick, it's a big book. Even a two hour interview is going to be faster. But basically, um, I'll just, so how would I explain this? So if you get excess calories overall, calories overall, or salt, or carbs, or amino acids, which would be protein, right? You come from protein. It raises uric, I'm just gonna respell this. This is how you get gout when you live on um, sausage and beer. 
gout, it comes from your uric acid being too high. You get crystals that precipitate out of your, and you know, accumulate in your joints. But long before you get gout, uric acid causes your body to store fat. And um, a lot of animals actually use this to their advantage. So like uh, bears, you know, when they just eat and eat and eat all summer, there's, they're flipping this switch to, and their bodies, if your body gets the message like, oh, there's a lot of extra calories. Okay. Let's switch it over into storage mode. Let's make hay while the sun shines. Right. So if there are a few people who don't have this gene that allows you to switch over and store fat easily, they're the people who never get fat, no matter what they eat. There are a few people who have that gene, but in terms of survival and of the species, there is no advantage to that at all because food was so unstable for such a long time. Food supply was very unstable. So you can totally see why the people who had the gene, which is most of us, that allows us to easily begin to store fat when we get excess calories for a period of time, particularly um, excess protein or carbs or even salt <laughs> will, and we flip the switch, raise our uric acid and we start storing fat. So, oops, sorry. Um, so yeah, hopefully there are a few people who don't have this, but they wouldn't have survived a hundred years ago unless someone really loved them and gave them their food first. But it's, it's a huge advantage to be able to put on 30 pounds of fat in the course of a couple months of overeating, which is, an, you know, that's what a human could easily do. If it was harvest time and there's all this ripe fruit and you made some beer and you slaughter the fatted calf and you just kind of feast, you know, you will start to put on weight. And um, a number of animals will flip this switch intentionally by eating as much as they can, especially if they're going to hibernate like a bear. Um, so just looking at it that way, um, so you need the right amount of calories overall, which it can be a hard thing <laughs> to get, right? It's, it's, it can be hard to know exactly how much you're eating. And then salt is good for you, but you want salt to be balanced. You want sodium and potassium to be in balance. You want them together. And what particularly will raise your uric acid about eating salt is if you eat a very salty thing and you don't have enough water. So it's the, what's the word? It's the rate of change, the quickness of the salt coming into your system and raising the saltiness of your blood, that's what trips the uric acid. And same thing with carbohydrates. Again, the steepness of that curb and the day after day of extra calories is what flips the switch. Or if you're eating a lot of protein, so much protein that it's more than your body needs to maintain muscle, and do its repair, all the things it would normally do with protein. If you're eating so much protein, there's an excess of that, which is truly a sign of, you know, 
plenty of resources in the environment because protein is, is special food. Or if you're drinking a bunch of beer which or alcohol, which has the amino acids from the, um, from the fermentation process, then that is also going to raise your uric acid. So this is how, this is how rich people used to get gout. Um, or even young, young men, I've heard of young men getting gout if they eat tons of, if they're drinking a lot and eating a lot of meat and seafood. So tons of amino acids from everything. And then, yeah. So this is again, part of why hydrating is so important because you want to keep the right concentration of all these things in your blood. Um, and this is why fiber is so important because fiber slows digestion and um, reduces the spikes that would trigger this uric acid thing. Okay. Now, in terms of the ratio of carbs to protein to fat, if you know you are insulin resistant, then you want to go low, low carb, low to moderate carb. Now in the short term, in the short term, meaning like a few months, um, if your thyroid is okay, going low carb is not going to affect your thyroid, but in the long term, in the months to years timeframe, keep, if you are disciplined enough to keep your carbs always low, your thyroid will probably end up low because of that signaling that there's just not that much quick energy available in your environment. So if you're never spiking your insulin, that could be good in a lot of ways. It's not completely ideal as a woman in terms of your hormones. As you get older, once you're through menopause, it might become a different thing, but yeah. So, but in terms of timing your insulin signaling such that it doesn't cause you to store calories as fat, um, you can, you can get an insulin signal now and then, and not have it, not have it wreck your cycle or not have it wreck your weight. So insulin, you also want some insulin signaling to build your muscle. If you're trying to gain muscle mass. exercise. And I've watched this with my girls too, that, you know, if they're watching their carbs, they, they try different little things, low carb or keto, whatever. If they're watching their carbs and they're working out, they, um, they just can't, they just can't bring it. My, my one daughter was cutting her carbs too much. And she also wasn't eating enough fat really for a real keto diet. And so she got surpassed by my other daughter, who's not as strong, not as big, but was more, um, was better at keeping track of how much she ate and making sure she actually ate enough protein and enough fat. But I also, you know, had to explain to the girls that they're still growing. 
they need some insulin signaling. They tend, um, my 18 year old tends to eat a bunch of carbs on the weekend. She kind of carbs it up on the weekend. And if she feels really weird, she'll have a little carbs during the week, even though she's like kind of keto or low carb, I'll see her eat something carby to kind of get her blood sugar up. Um, my daughter who's 15, who naturally has a sweet tooth and probably has some kind of insulin resistance because she's so, so moody um, at times and so impulsive. So I know her brain chemicals aren't quite right. Um, so she was eating a lot more protein, but she needed to eat a lot more fat. She does feel better when she's on a keto diet, as long as she gets enough fat. And she eats a little bit, some carbs on the weekend. So again, long-term, I said, this is going to slow down your thyroid. You've got to take breaks, but you know, short-term days to weeks, you can do whatever you want. It's going to work out fine. So, so Monica, a lot of this comes down to what's kind of sustainable for you. Um, the zone diet is pretty much a one-to-one -one ratio of carbs to protein. So one-to-one. -one. And I don't, I mean, I don't, I know it was never on the long enough to see that that changed my thyroid or anything. Um, when I was a teenage, teenager doing this, I could be kind of active, keep this one-to-one -one ratio. I had to add in a lot more fat. So as I look back, I was on a semi-keto diet because I was not adding extra carbs, but I had to put in a lot more fat than he indicated. Otherwise I would have been hungry all the time. But if I had a more or less one-to-one -one ratio of carbs to protein, it's maybe slightly more carbs, but it's almost one-to-one. -one. And then I didn't watch the fat at all. Yeah. So my understanding about the thyroid thing, which I would definitely plan to go into more detail is that um, you don't want to be always low carb if you're trying to, you know, you definitely wouldn't want to be always keto if you're trying to do the ideal thing for your thyroid. Now, a one-to-one -one ratio of carbs to protein would still be, you know, maybe 150 grams of carbs, 100 to 150 grams of carbs a day. That might be plenty for your thyroid. But if you're craving carbs, not just because you're stressed or it's emotional eating or something, if you're like, oh, I, I went for a walk and now I really want to eat two oranges, that you know, you probably really do need it. One thing that I think is really great about the something like the zone diet is it's pretty insistent that you always eat protein with your carbohydrates. And if you are insulin resistant, um, eating protein and fat and carbs together, always eating mixed meals really does make it easier on your pancreas, on your tired, tired pancreas and eating fiber, right? So you're trying to give your pancreas a break. And so I would say you would want to keep a mixed meal almost all the time, unless you just did a big workout and you're craving carbs. 
and then you have some kind of healthy-ish carb. And I, I very much prefer fruit carbs over bread carbs. It might just be fruit is metabolized differently. Fructose is metabolized differently from glucose. Fructose goes through your liver uh, first. I mean, it goes through your body a little slower. It gets broken down a little slower, but it can raise your uric acid more. Now, I've, I've yet to meet someone who got gout from eating too much fruit, but theoretically, if you're very sensitive and this uric acid pathway is well-traveled in your body, you've been, then fruit could be, um, fructose could be part of the problem. Again, I've, I've yet to meet a person who could look me in the eye and say, I got fat eating eight oranges a day. Like, I, I don't know anybody that likes oranges as much as me. Usually it's soda that has that high fructose corn syrup and has enough that you could actually eat it excessively because it has no fiber with it. But anytime you're eating fruit that has fiber, it's going to be harder to eat it excessively. But there is this possibility that you personally could be so sensitive to fructose and that whole metabolic pathway of turning fructose into fat that you should watch your fruit. So let's just put that out there. Um, as I get older, and this might be a deciding factor, you know, and most of the, most of the time I'm not going to sit down and eat eight oranges, right? Like one is plenty, unless I really, really worked out hard or I was, you know, nursing my 18 month old that would run around all day. Um, so something, but I do, I do like to buy the smaller apples, you know, like the min, the mini ones that are for kids because a big ass, a big, uh, a big apple, a big Costco apple can be too much of a commitment, right? That's just, sometimes when I have a Costco size apple, it's just, it was clear. It was too much sugar. So the small ones, you know, I do think it's good to eat your fructose as fruit or, you know, because then you're going to eat it slower and it's easier to kind of find your sweet spot. So if you look up the zone diet as kind of a jumping off point to figure out, well, this is kind of a, a low to moderate carb diet. Maybe I don't want to go keto because it might mess up. It's going to confuse my thyroid even more, right? Um, there's these kind of, let me see if I can pull one of these up. I think I've got some of these in my folders these diet blocks where it kind of suggests different, you can pair any foods you want basically. So you can mix, you know, you just pick from the blocks. Here we go. Open this one up. And um, you pick up, you pick up protein and a carb and a fat. And again, you don't have to worry about the fat. In my, in my experience as a teenager, and even now, I don't particularly have to worry about the fat. If you wanted to get really lean, then you probably would. The other thing I don't care for about the zone diet is that it has these things called the glycemic index, which I think is a little bit dated. Um, the glycemic index was determined by 
having somebody eat 50 grams of carbohydrates of each food and watching how fast it spiked their blood sugar. But that's again, just like the oral glucose tolerance test, it's a kind of an unnatural thing. Um, some of these foods you might eat 50 grams of, and some of them you would never eat 50 grams of cooked carrot carbohydrates all by itself. You know, that'd be like carrot baby food, right? And so, you know, some of something like pineapple, they say it's a poor choice because it spikes your blood sugar fast. And, and I would say, you know, if you're eating pineapple by itself, yes, it will clearly spike your blood sugar fast. If you're eating pineapple as your carbohydrate with a salad and some protein, you know, just enjoy your pineapple. That's, that's not how, that's not how people gain weight. Um, fruit is designed to be delicious. And, you know, they say tangerine there. So they're, you know, they say these ones are the best that are the, the fruits that have a lot of fiber and water and very little carbohydrates. So that's, that's, that's all fine. But it's, it's really hard to imagine that having pineapple rather than strawberries on your salad with chicken is the deciding factor. So I, I really want to, you know, tell people don't agonize about that, but in terms of quantities, this is really nice, right? So half of an apple is one block of carbs. That's like nine or 10 grams of carbs. Okay. A third of a cup of applesauce, three apricots, a third of a banana. So you know, banana has a fair amount of carbs. So the useful thing about this is it just helps you kind of um, plan out your meals. So it's like, oh, okay. If I'm supposed to balance a carb and a protein, I would have one apple and two eggs, right? So then you're having two carb blocks with your apple and two protein blocks because each egg is like a protein block. And this is one of the really interesting things that we, we talk about in Girls Health Club. When the girls add up their food on chronometer, we talk about how depending on your metabolism, eating two eggs and one piece of toast can be dramatically different from eating one egg and two pieces of toast. And most of us know right away, which one would be better. I'm very much the two eggs and one piece of toast most of the time, unless I've been extremely active. Then I might, then two pieces of toast and one egg might be right. But it varies, my, my natural sedentary self, it's, it, I really have to watch my carbs. Um, now, as soon as I start getting more active, I can have more. There's also some nutrients that make a difference. So I'll pull up that part of the slideshow if I can find it here. Um, so yeah, the zone food blocks, you could, if you just Google zone food blocks, you'll find so many websites that have that. It's, it's pretty easy. Okay, so let me pull this up and go back to the slideshow here. Um, okay, so I just wanted to talk about the brain a little bit. Can you guys see this? Or am I, am I only seeing it? I'm not sharing it. Okay, let me try this again. So part of what people might say about going on a lower carb diet or a keto diet is they feel calmer, they feel better. And glucose does cross the blood brain barrier. So your level in your blood is going to 
go into your brain. And this is part of why your body wants to control it so much, because if you get way too much glucose in your brain, it's, it's really bad. It'll be like you're drunk, which is part of how someone having a diabetic emergency might behave. So your, your blood brain barrier does not require insulin to get the sugar through. But if we are on a fasting or keto diet, you adjust so that you don't have to use it all from your muscles. But there's certain parts of your brain. Oh, here's a little chart. Fatty acids can't cross, but glucose and ketones can cross the, that blood brain barrier. And here's a picture, which I thought was really interesting of why you cannot get the glucose requirement of your brain down to zero. So you have mitochondria to do metabolism in the middle part of your astrocytes, but the skinny edges, these long fingery parts, they have no room to hold mitochondria. So they are reliant on the sugar that's floating around um, in the fluid around them to have some, to be able to work. That's why you have to have some sugar going into your brain. And then there's a few other cells in your body that also need that kind of background sugar to be there. So that besides the brain, even when the brain's adapted, you need a little bit for those astrocytes, your eyes, kidneys, red blood cells. And if you have testicles, then, so those are your minimum glucose requirements, just a little bit. People do describe after a long time of being on a ketogenic diet that their, um, their eyes get, their tissues get very dry. Part of how um, we make our fluids in our body is with polysaccharides. They're, they're made out of our carbohydrates. And again, you can make them to some extent with out of other things, but it's a lot of metabolic work to do that. So if you are on a ketogenic diet, you will tend to make less of those fluids over time. So it could be your eyes, uh, it could be your saliva, you could get dry eyes, but for a woman, you would probably notice that you would get uh, changes in your cycle, you would get less mucus from eating less carbohydrates. And conversely, if you are going for more clear mucus signals or greater fertility, you would want to eat more complex carbohydrates. Because of course the carbohydrates are signaling your body that the thyroid can be raised and your fertility can be kept at optimal levels, but also the literal building blocks of that mucus is carbohydrates. So in, um, in Chinese medicine, they talk about, um, they talk about root vegetables being really good for your yin, the moistening aspect of your body, which we would call polysaccharides, mucus membranes, and stuff like that. And root vegetables are slow carbs plus a bunch of nutrients like carotenes that help make uh, good mucus. So you don't want to cut out. That's the other reason, even though potatoes are high glycemic and carrots are high glycemic, I have never met a person who wants to eat a baked potato with nothing else on it. I mean, you'd have to power through. It'd be really boring, right? So to say that 50 grams of potato is gonna spike your blood sugar X amount 
is, is kind of a fake test. Nobody eats potatoes like that. You always eat potatoes with a bunch of fat and usually with a pile of protein because it's such a good combination. So I think it's a little bit unfair that potatoes have been characterized that way. And also carrots do a bunch of carrot cooked carrots by themselves will spike your blood sugar, but whoever does that, you would never eat carrots without a drizzle of olive oil and some other kind of food with them. So, um, so this is kind of the, a little bit to Monica's question about, um, the exercise, let's see along the lines that we were talking about before, if you naturally, they took, um, I don't remember if this is rodents or peoples that were insulin resistant. So IR means insulin resistant. So the baseline of these animals or people was that um, when they were not exercising, they were um, this was how much how much uh, like sugar they could get into their muscles, basically. So the insulin resistant ones were not getting sugar into their muscles very well. That is here, okay. here. Meanwhile, the ones who were naturally insulin sensitive were getting their sugar into the muscles at this rate, quite different. I mean, basically, more than twice as easily, which again explains part of why people feel so much better and so much more energetic when they're insulin sensitive than when they're insulin resistant, right? Because you're literally not getting your muscles filled up with the resources. If you're, if you have genetic or just developed insulin resistance, right? It's not the same as these people who are insulin sensitive, the sugar's going in. But if you take that insulin resistant person and start working them out, then they can, their muscles respond much more like the person almost exactly at the level of the person who naturally does this well. Isn't that interesting? I thought this was super interesting. So it doesn't now, meanwhile, the person who was already using insulin well is using it extremely well, right? Again, they've doubled it. But if you look at it proportionally, the person who was insulin resistant to start with is getting even more benefit from exercise in a way because they've more than doubled their capacity to make glycogen. The person who was already insulin sensitive has just doubled it. But I think this, this graph is really illustrative of part, partly why some people can enjoy exercise so much more than others, right? And why you have to ease into it if you have not been active very much. The other thing about metabolism is if you're not in the habit of exercising very much, you actually have fewer mitochondria in your cells. I'll just draw a little picture here. So you've got your cell nucleus, you've got a few mitochondria, right? The little ATP makers of the cell. As you exercise more over time, you actually make extra mitochondria. 
because just like building muscle or building bone with that stimulation from your activities, your environment, if you routinely just move your body, challenge yourself a little bit, it only has to be zone two exercise. Zone two exercise means that someone who was talking on the phone with you would be able to tell you were working out, but you could carry on a conversation. It's not like, oh, I'm working out so hard, I don't want to talk. It would just be like they'd be able to tell. You're taking a brisk walk, but you're on the phone or you got your head, your earpiece in. So zone two exercise, um, if you do it four times a week for 40 minutes, I mean, that's what they've done the studies and shown, it will increase your mitochondria. Then this also helps with in insulin resistance because every cell in your body is burning energy faster. Every cell then has higher energy demands on a per cell basis, not even your muscles or your liver, or how much you can store any of that. This is cell by cell. Every cell is using more. Now, and this probably explains why, you know, so many kids can just literally eat whatever they want. Partly they're growing, but if you have an active kid, can you imagine how much mitochondria they're developing versus if you were an inactive kid? And so this is what I think about sometimes for myself. I was that kid that just sat and read books as much as I could. So, you know, I would exercise when something interesting came up, but metabolically <laughs> you're at a big disadvantage if you, um, just were never that active as a kid. It doesn't have to be sports, but you know, kids that just run around, um, it still, it still adds up. Actually, the other thing about kids is, you know, hit workouts, high intensity interval training. The whole intent point of a hit workout is to do a mixture of zone two to zone five. Zone five is your absolute maximum. You can't sustain it for more than a couple of minutes. Zone five creates a metabolic deficit. It creates a bunch of stuff that has to be fixed and replaced later that uses a bunch of energy. So that's why they say hit workouts or those kind of high intensity bursts will increase your metabolism for hours afterwards beyond the basic calories you burned while you were doing it. So it's creating deficits that then have to be filled in and replaced in a good way. But if you think about how kids play, even if you have a kid that doesn't do sports, but they, they race around with their siblings and friends on their bikes, they're pushing all out to race. You're playing tag, you're playing foxes and chickens or sharks and minnows. You are doing bursts. You're playing ultimate Frisbee, soccer, any sport that requires bursts. And then also a kind of a sustained level of activity is ideal training. It's ideal training for your lungs, your metabolism, your mitochondria. Now, as an adult, if you go play ultimate Frisbee, you're probably gonna feel like you need to puke if you're really pushing yourself through a lot of zone four and five activity. 
but if you have a treadmill and you can just get on and watch a movie and push yourself a little bit, just put it at a pace that pushes you a little bit, you're still getting a lot of metabolic benefit over time doing that. And doing it at that level, the zone two level should not wear you out. Even if you're not in great health, even if you have a little bit of a thyroid thing and fibromyalgia, there should be a level of exercise. Maybe it's not 40 minutes, four times a week, but there should be a level of exercise where you can challenge yourself a little bit, but not be paying for it the whole rest of the week. Does anybody have any questions about that? I hope that's, hope that's clear enough. Um, the other thing to note about just exercise in general, in terms of metabolism is that if you, you do need to eat enough, but you also need to really hydrate and make sure you get enough minerals. Um, sometimes when people are really wiped after exercise, it's just that they need more minerals. And, and if you get a, a supplement like, um, liquid minerals, whoops, I'm going to do my drawings that can make a really big difference. Okay, so I've got a slide here with some of the causes of insulin resistance, just a few different ones that can come up. Um, let's see, gestational diabetes. Also, if your mom had gestational diabetes when she was pregnant with you, if her blood sugar was running high, you can actually be born with a tired pancreas as an infant. Um, obviously it's kind of genetic, certain hormonal conditions and steroids, antidepressants will change your metabolism. Sleep apnea is huge. It's so common as people get older, your adenoids get a little swollen. The tissues get a little softer and floppier on the inside. And if you have poor sleep, even for a week, they've done this with normal volunteers that had normal metabolism. Within a week of sleep depriving them down to like maybe five hours a night instead of eight, um, which is very much what happens when you have sleep apnea because it's so interrupted. Within a week, they needed 50% more insulin to process the same amount of sugar. They were controlling what they ate and they could see that they needed much more insulin to process even the same amount of sugar, which is not to mention the fact that when you're sleep deprived, you tend to eat more sugar and more junky things because it changes your perception of hunger, right? So sleep is huge, huge in terms of insulin resistance. And if you have any suspicion that you're not sleeping well, if your husband's ever told you you're snoring or you sound weird, or you could even just make an audio recording of yourself at night and, and figure this out because, you know, that'll be that uneven, irregular breathing and gaps in your breathing. So, um, okay. Got a couple more. Oh yeah. Here's some signs. I think this is the last slide. So, you know, usually people know if you feel gross after eating carbs, but you also feel like you need to eat a lot of sugar if you're trying to get an energy lift. The elevated triglycerides, if you're getting your blood work done, um, the standard cutoff is 150, but people who are more into optimizing health say the cutoff should be 100.
And if you just don't feel that strong or you have poor exercise tolerance, like we talked about, that's partly just that there's not as much fuel available to your muscles because it's not getting, it's not getting through. Um, elevated blood sugar, it takes a lot of insulin resistance to get your blood sugar very significantly elevated as we looked at with that chart. So elevated blood sugar is going to be kind of a subtle sign. A1C is that measure of your average blood sugar over time, over the last about three months or so. But it's, um, it doesn't exactly correlate with your blood sugar, but it's just kind of one more thing to look at to try to get information. If you are slow to heal your wounds or you have a poor supply of milk, those can also be signs of insulin resistance. Um, and I know at least one person who had a really hard time nursing because every time the baby nurses it, you know, can kind of damage you a little bit. And then she also had low milk supply. So the kid was being a very aggressive nurser to try to get the milk. And so nursing was really unpleasant, I think largely because her blood sugar was running too high. And that kind of apple shape, the central abdominal weight gain, higher waist to hip ratio. So one thing that people say about if you're trying to manage your insulin, your metabolism, you and you're building muscle, this is why you don't necessarily want to look at the scale. Often people who gain weight easily also gain muscle easily when they switch over to having more protein, but you may not lose any weight, even though your proportions are changing a lot and your metabolism is changing a lot. So rather than use a scale, um, it could be it could be better to just look at how your clothes are fitting or just take measurements with a measuring tape. I usually just go with clothes because I'm lazy about taking measurements. But you probably kind of know, like if you have a waist, if you're getting more of a waist, you know, that can be a really easy sign. Um, and then those PCOS symptoms, acne, androgen, like the facial hair, thinning hair on top of the head, um, really oily skin, obviously that's a sign of insulin resistance and irregular ovulation and periods. So you go, you ladies would all know at this point, if that was part of the picture, you probably track this a little bit. I think that's the last slide. So practically speaking, um, You definitely want to let's see. Oh yeah, we've got one more slide here. So this is just kind of some things you can do to improve your blood sugar stability, which is mostly what you want to do if you have insulin resistance. There's still room to have your blood sugar go up here and there when you've been active and there's some place for the sugar to go and you want to maintain your thyroid, but mostly you want your blood sugar to be more stable. Um, as particularly if you're recovering from kind of a long-term adrenal fatigue sort of situation, like I think you're describing Monica, just a, a long period of not quite having things right. And you're trying to be the gentlest you can on your body.
A lot of people say that apple cider vinegar really helps their digestion, helps their blood sugar be a lot more stable after meals. Um, if you move, if you exercise, you can actually get sugar into your cells without insulin. So even type one diabetics, if they take a long, brisk walk after a meal, they can use much less insulin. So again, if you start moving right after you eat your meal or shortly after you eat your meal, that's already kind of a mixed meal with not too many carbs, then you're sparing, you're sparing your energy even more. Um, glycine tends to stabilize people's blood sugar. I've heard of glycine specifically recommended for a nighttime kind of calming supplement too. Um, there's obviously, you've probably heard of cinnamon, licorice, minerals, B vitamins. Again, we saw that B vitamins are a big part of your metabolism on a, like a bottom level chemistry. Increased hydration. You want to, again, um, make sure there's, I mean, make sure you have enough water in general, but also make sure you're not, increased hydration will make your sugar and salt, the concentration of things in your blood not increase so rapidly and trigger that uric acid response. Um, more sleep for so many reasons. And stress management, we talked about how uh, stress will spike your blood sugar. It'll cause your body to dump sugar from wherever it can. And if your thyroid is too high or too low, that's obviously gonna change how your metabolism and your blood sugar works. If you have an autoimmune condition, that's also gonna change how your blood sugar works. So just, I put those on the list just to be, try to be thorough. Um, and then, muscle building and weightlifting because you actually use your, your training, your metabolism, you're training your muscles to retain more glucose, more glycogen. And I've got a couple of other resources that I think might be interesting. I'll just show you guys real quick on, um, on, I think this is on Instagram. I'm not really on Instagram. But there's a lady called Glucose Goddess. And yeah, she has all these pictures of how her, how your blood sugar will look eating different types of meals or even eating the same foods in a different order, like eating your, so I'll just, I'll just kind of show this. And I don't know if this is just based on her or other people kind of put these in or if she's experimenting on herself. So, you know, hundred calories of store-bought trail mix, chocolate and almonds, caramel popcorn, <laughs> coconut oil and sea. You know, you can kind of see, right? This is understandable when you're looking at what these things are. Chocolate cake slice. Like, yep, that's exactly how I feel after chocolate cake slice. Way too high blood sugar, right? Chocolate cake slice with Greek yogurt, that probably is still too high for me. That just still does not sound good. But it's really interesting because these, you know, I've always kind of wondered, and I don't pay for a blood sugar monitor to track my own blood sugar, but 
she does this thing where she compares the vinegar, apple cider vinegar, and then chocolate, you know. And of course, her results might be different from your results, but it's sure interesting to look at the difference, right? Or pistachios versus Chex Mix. I mean, this is really interesting. She says to choose dessert instead of, you know, because you've already had other food. And personally, when I was trying, trying to watch my carbs, I would just cut out the bread and pasta, which didn't call my name as much and eat a lot of um, huge salad, some protein, and then have dessert. So, you know, choosing the carbs that you like. Oh yeah, here it's whole milk cappuccino after bad sleep or just a whole milk cappuccino, right? Two apples, juice, smoothie, two apples whole, right? So two apples is still a lot of sugar if you aren't doing anything. So it's interesting, right? <laughs> Ice cream two days before a period and seven days, right? That it's just hormones, just hormones right there, right? Super, super interesting. So anyway, glucose goddess is kind of fun. Um, the other website is if you want to track this for yourself and see where your ratios are coming out is chronometer. It's totally free to make an account. I'll just log in real quick. And it asks you your age and sex and activity level and maybe your current weight. I don't remember what it asked me at the beginning, but it asks you some stuff to kind of create your profile. So here it is for me. It's telling me at my baseline doing nothing, 40 years old, I need 1,521 calories, okay? So I have the free version. That's why I see these, these dumb ads. But if you start adding foods, whatever food you're eating, it's in here. It's super thorough. You can even put in brands like Costco or Annie's Mac and Cheese, half cup, you know, and it'll be on there. And so when I do this with the girls, we will, in our health class, I say, you know, no judgment. This is just a fun experiment. It's hilarious what people say. Sometimes they're at grandma's house and they're literally having um, Lucky Charms for breakfast and chocolate cake for lunch and like two pieces of ham because it's, it's grandma's house, you know. And some of the girls have these picture perfect diets. Some of them are way under eating. Some of them are way over eating. Both. I see. I see both. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, outing grandma. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when you when you put in all the foods, it'll just start to add everything up. It adds up how much iron you're getting, calcium, you know, it just starts to just tally it up for you. And it's not like you'd want to do this every day, it'd be so boring. But if you do kind of a diagnostic day here and there, and you're thinking, okay, I think I could eat, you know, two eggs. Um, and a piece of Ezekiel bread. And then for lunch, I would have a tuna fish sandwich and an apple or whatever, you know, you kind of put your, you're like, I, this is, I could eat this, or this is what I did eat yesterday. Am I on the right track? And then it'll, you'll be able to see the ratio of protein to carbs and fat. And I personally just don't worry about the fat, which is maybe why I'm not at my ideal, ideal weight, but, um, and I'm also not really exercising as much as I used to. But it's, it's just really nice because it's so convenient to add things up. 
So, you know, you put in eggs cooked like this to medium add. There it is. You're already at, you know, 11 grams of protein, right? So then you add Ezekiel bread. I don't actually I don't even need Ezekiel bread. I would have like an apple. Nobody really, you know, always apple fresh with skin. You win one medium apple. Okay, there you go. So you can kind of tell you where you are. You might be under eating. Often women, I don't worry about the over, well, I don't, I, I don't worry about the ratio or the overall calories added by fat because I find that fat is the easiest thing to naturally regulate. I just won't want fatty foods at times. And sometimes they taste amazing. I feel like, and fatty foods tend to be very filling. So I'm not going to, yeah, just from personal experience, I find it very intuitive. Sometimes I will eat a lot of fat, but then I'm not hungry for six hours. So as long as I don't eat when I'm not hungry, it doesn't matter that I had most of a wheel of brie at lunchtime. Um, and then I just don't, I'm not hungry for fat the rest of the day because I already got so much. So I, I just, that's part of why I don't watch it is because I find it very intuitive to regulate it most of the time. Um, although if I am very tired and underslept, I will want cheesecake for breakfast. I will want fatty, sugary things and junkier things instead of like eggs and an apple. So this is part of why I try to get enough sleep because I don't have a ton of self-discipline and getting enough sleep makes it easier to make the right choices and have them feel, you know, have a normal diet, feel good. Um, it just feels so much better. And when I, when I get underslept chronically, you just feel a little bit gross, you know, all the time, it's much harder to distinguish hunger and fullness cues when you're underslept or when you're very stressed. And so the other technique as a mom that I found really helpful is if I'm really tired or kind of stressed and it's dinner time, I don't eat. I don't sit down and eat dinner. I'll sit down and have a cup of tea or cucumber or just something to kind of settle down and figure out how, how hungry I am. But if I just sit down and kind of eat without really settling down, then I'll get through the first plate and then be like, well, am I still hungry? I wasn't even really hungry in the first place, but now I feel more hungry. It's just weird. And I've also talked to, I had an interesting conversation with a mom who was checking her blood sugar. It was high every morning. It was fine the rest of the day. And she was in her early forties at this point. And I said, well, how late are you eating dinner? Right. That's a really basic thing. People talk about as you get older. She said, oh, I eat around seven. I said, well, are you hungry? Are you eating seconds or just one serving? And she said, oh yeah, I'm not really hungry. I'm mostly just tired, but I eat because I'll know I'll feel a little more energetic after I eat, but I don't actually really want to eat. I just eat because it's there and I'm sitting down with everybody. And so, you know, your blood sugar can be high in the morning because you overate the night before you haven't processed it all, or because your cortisol is spiking really high right before you wake up, which can, is partly how we wake up, but then you can get an excessive cortisol spike with stress. So who knows with her, 
but she was certainly aware that she was eating when she was not very hungry. So it's a little bit of joke at my house that if I'm really tired, I won't really eat dinner or I'll have a bowl of cereal, just something really basic. Um, Cause I, I don't like that feeling of eating. I don't like how it feels in my mouth when I'm really tired and I eat a big complex meal. Um, so I don't think it's, I mean, I guess some people feel like it's weird to not eat what the kids are eating. I personally don't think it's weird to let your kids get the idea that maybe when you're 40, you're going to eat differently than when you're 10. And maybe mommy just has a salad for dinner, even though they're going to have, you know, two servings of spaghetti and meatballs or whatever. I just, I just don't think that's the weirdest thing to let on to kids that things change over time. But anyway, the nice thing about this is it, this can give you a reality check of whether you're over or under eating. And particularly if you already have adrenal fatigue and you're like, oh no, how will I ever lose the weight unless I don't eat very much, but then you're trying to only eat healthy food. It is easy to undereat. And I've had more than one girl in the class um, that was just way under eating. Let's see if I can find this girl's. She was trying to only eat healthy food. It would have been fine for me. It was way under eating or it was under eating enough that she only had a few periods a year for a 17 year old. So let me see about this. Um, here we go. This is what she was eating. We tallied it all up on chronometer. So actually what she told me she was eating was only down to the brown rice. So she was only at about 1700 calories a day. She's only eating to here. And with a teenager metabolism, you can see why that would make her not have a cycle. But look at what she's eating, eggs, apple, and peanut butter for breakfast, rice, chicken cordon bleu and salad for lunch, and vegetables. So it's great. Look at all this fiber, right? Orange for lunch and or snack and cashews, curry chicken and rice for dinner. It just wasn't adding up to enough calories. And this looks like a completely fine diet. It actually would be fine probably for a 40 year old, right? But just to be aware, if you weren't, <laughs> it'd be easy to eat even less than this if you're a busy mom and you're trying to not overeat and only eat real food, you can end up at 1200 calories a day without even realizing it. And then that is going to compromise all your metabolic systems too. So that's why chronometer is good for a reality check. So I told this girl, add some butter and olive oil and like, where would that get you? If you put more butter on your rice, added some olive oil, you're like, okay, we're at 2,100 calories. And then I said, look, your carbs are low. Her carb to protein ratio might be ideal for a 40 year old woman, but she's been doing this for a long time. This girl had lost her hair during COVID, which is not what you expect from a 17 year old. And so I said, I think your carb to protein ratio is too low. She was tall and lean naturally. She probably would genetically have a pretty decent carb tolerance, not, not a poor carb tolerance like mine. And so I suggested that she carb 
add a couple carbs, more carbs in at least a couple of days a week. So let me show you what we ended up with when we added a little bit more carbs. I suggested mangoes and sweet potatoes because they're nutrient dense carbs. I didn't wanna wreck all of her good habits, right? Um, but then that gets her up to, you know, 25, 2600 calories, at least on the carbier days. And she got back to me um, a month later, she'd gotten a period. So about two weeks after she started eating all these extra calories, she got, she ovulated. And then two weeks after that, she got her period. And she said she felt so much better that instead of just walking the dog, she'd started jogging. And, and she was getting a regular cycle. So that's, you know, again, she was trying to be healthy and she was under eating. So um, the same thing could happen with us in our forties or thirties. It's just an easy thing to have happen accidentally. That's why it's good to have a reality check. Yeah. Um, okay, so I've got about, I have a class coming in at 12 for a short story club. So I've got about five more minutes for questions. If anybody else has some questions, I can try to answer. I hope. Find the calorie suggestions. Um, I mean, I think they're as accurate as, oh, well, yeah. The calorie suggestions are based on a lot of data. It's based on research about what the average person will use at the average muscle and activity levels. I'm, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to actually weigh all my food. So even when you're estimating how much you ate as a human, it's not going to be exactly. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, it's not going to be exactly, but I think it's good to get a sense of how much, of whether you're way under or way over. I mean, I would guess that I probably need more calories than the app is telling me, right? I walk around the house. We, I walk from the house to the barn. I'm on my feet with the kids. The fact that I don't particularly watch my calories and I don't gain a ton of weight must mean that there's quite a bit of room there. But also I like a lot of real foods. And we don't buy that much junk food. And as you see, the real food calories don't add up that fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's definitely good data from how you're feeling. Yeah. And how hungry you are. And I mean, it's, it's complicated with hunger because hunger can be driven by fatigue and stress and all sorts of other things. That's part of why hydration is so helpful. It helps to kind of figure out what's actually hunger and what's just other things. But yeah, I'd, I'd encourage you to just, you know, make a free account and try it. And, um, but then whatever exercise you're able to do is going to contribute to your metabolism in different ways. So if you're able to walk, then that's obviously, you know, burning fat and carbs while you're walking. If you're able to do something a little more intense, like you're playing tag with the kids, you know, then you can get up into those higher zones. And that creates kind of a different draw in your metabolism. And then if you're lifting weights, you're using the glycogen while you're lifting weights, and then you have to replace it afterwards. So you have that kind of cushion both ways. And then your overall resting metabolism, regardless of what exercise you do, you're 
resting metabolism is going to increase over time. So yeah, the, I mean, the app can't account for all of that, but it is kind of just helpful to get a sense 